The text this morning is the first seven verses of Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. More and more over the recent months, years, I think, the staff, the pastoral staff, have been increasingly burdened with the urgency of local evangelism, telling people about God and sin and Christ and faith. No matter what part of our faith we focused on, no matter how we've conceived of Christianity, what angle we've come at it, the Bible has sent us right to evangelism every time. Let me illustrate. If we focus on Christianity as a life of love, we should be loving people. Well, immediately the Bible shows us that you're just playing games if you say you love somebody when you just do nice things for them and you don't show them the way to get right with God and avoid destruction and have eternal glory. You call that love. It's just not reasonable. Or if you consider Christianity as, say, uh, fulfilling the commands of God. That's what my Christianity is. I obey God. Well, then, all of a sudden, the Bible directs you to commands like, Make disciples of all nations or rescue the perishing. And so immediately your Christianity means evangelism again. Or if you uh, focus on that dimension of Christianity that says life is joy. That's what Christianity is. It's a life of fulfillment and joy. Well, then you discover very soon in the Bible that it is more blessed, more joyful to give than to receive and you discover in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 that when somebody is led to Christ through your ministry, that person becomes your joy, your hope, your crown of exaltation. And again, you're directed to evangelism if your Christianity is a life of, of joy. Or maybe you would focus in like we like to on the staff and say our Christianity is uh, a pursuit or a, a desire to see the, the world filled with the glory of God. Well, then you read in the Bible that herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and that your fruit remain, 
And you're directed to evangelism again. And, and the preaching series in the end of the fall, we learned that unbelief is the root of all the dishonor that God gets in the world. And therefore, not to want to overcome unbelief in people's lives is to be in favor of God getting no glory. And so you're driven to evangelism again if you believe that life is for the glory of God. Or your Christianity might be, I believe that Christianity is a force for changing things in society and for social justice. And then you go to the Bible and all of a sudden you discover that the Bible says that the human heart is in such a bad state of sinfulness that if it doesn't get transformed through the preaching of the gospel, a foundation for social justice is missing. And in fact, society will become more and more degenerate as there are more and more unbelievers, more and more unrestrained by the truth of the Bible. And so if every new generation doesn't have its powerful force of evangelism, the foundations of social justice disintegrate. And so you're driven to evangelism again if you believe Christianity is for social justice. Or if you believe Christianity finally is for kingdom power demonstrations. There's a lot today about power encounters. And you say, that's what my Christianity is all about. It's power, the demonstration of God's power in the world. Well, then you go to the Bible and you discover right off the bat in the life of Jesus that the great power encounter is when the strong man is bound, that's Satan, and his house is plundered. That means getting people out of his control. And there you are with evangelism again. Or you go to Romans 1.16 and it says, the power of God, no, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And there's, the, there's evangelism. So you see what's been happening on the staff We're so biblically oriented that every way we turn, we're getting banged up against the head with evangelism and its urgency in the world. And the conclusion simply rises and presses itself on our hearts that neither we as a staff can be an authentically Christian staff, nor can we as a church be an authentically Christian church. If we don't have a burden, a passion, and an effort to make known to our culture and our society and our friends who God is, what sin is, who Christ is and what He did, and what faith is. That's the gospel. you got to talk about those four things when you're making known the preciousness of our faith. So, for Bethlehem's sake, for God's sake, for what all Christianity is, for our own sense of authenticity, we have been burdened that we be more burdened as a church and more effective in making known who Jesus is and drawing people to the Savior. Now, one response, and I only stress that it's one, because if you were here in the middle of the night on Friday, you saw another great response that's in the offing, as David Michael has uh, designed and blocked off all the segments of Philip's neighborhood, has the Christians and their houses pointed and is trying to get prayer clusters with prayer leaders so that that whole neighborhood from here down to Lake Street is going to feel the, the gospel force of Christians in the year to come as we pray and strategize for how every house can be uh, contacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one of the ways that we have... Uh, hit upon is in your hands, or I would ask that you put it in your hands now, namely this little pamphlet called Quest 
for joy. We've made, printed 5,000 of these. A thousand of them are in the bulletins this morning. And uh, more will be available on the book table. And if God leads you to be helped by this and to find it helpful, they're free. You can take them. They're going to be paid for by Chef, which is the, uh, the account made up of the proceeds of Desiring God sales. And so as many of these as you can use, the back is blank so that you can write notes to people and mail it to people. There's not a word in here about Bethlehem. And you in that little box inside can put your own name if you want to have people follow up with you. This is, is, is intended to be as useful as it can possibly be. And let me stress now at the outset that we are convinced that in sharing the gospel, the good news, the faith, Christ, there are as many ways to do that as there are ways to obey Jesus. The point is, evangelism is such a varied enterprise that no one must feel constrained into one mold of how to get across the truth of Jesus. So if having looked at this and listened to me preach on this folder for five weeks, you conclude that's not me, don't worry about it. No big deal. But there is something that's you in evangelism. And I think our job as the leadership of the church is not to squeeze everybody into the same mold of how to share the gospel, but one, to inspire you to do it, two, to provide biblical foundations for what to say, and three, to hold out options that under God might be blessed. Different ones. And this is one that we're going to work real hard to explain and to encourage you to consider in the weeks to come. Let me explain where it came from, how it came about, because I think that will help you in your understanding of its content as well as how it might be used. This book, Desiring God, which is out here on the book table, is intended to capture in writing the vision of God that drives the leadership of this church and the vision of what it means to be a Christian. That's the point of this book, and it's being written back in 1985. To try to capture in writing what is this God, how does he relate to people, how ought we to respond to him, and what respond to him, and, and what does it mean to follow him. That's the point of this book. Now, I don't know whether God will bless this book in the long run directly with the conversion of many people. I do know that Dan Chalmers at the last Missions in the Manse told those of us who were there about a nominal Catholic priest in Manila who was converted by reading the book. And that thrilled my heart because I want to hear stories like that. But... I doubt, frankly, that the book is going to be directly effective with unbelievers. It assumes a lot. And so people have begun to ask me over the years since it came out, is there any way that we could take uh, something simple and short that would have a little more accessibility with unbelievers and yet 
be based on the same vision of God and the same conception of the gospel that's, that's in desiring God and that drives the worship services and the, the staff at Bethlehem. And so we've been thinking about this for years. And uh, it's been in rough form for years. And what you have in your hands is the latest product of an effort to answer that desire. And with the help of Byron Cruz and his design work and Rick Bush and his printing work and Carol Steinbach and Cliff Short and the staff and a lot of ASK classes who've had input, this is the latest effort. I know it's not perfect and uh, I haven't come up with any little drawings or anything, but I think it's real attractive and I think it's real solid. And I hope under God it's going to be Useful, And I'm really open to input. In fact, I've got some ideas already what the next edition might have differently. And you communicate to me if you have any. But here's my goal now. I want us as a church to uh, study the truth that is summarized in this pamphlet. I want us to be able to communicate with people who God is what he's up to, what sin is and its consequences, what Christ did in his death and resurrection, and what faith is. Those are the four things you've got to get people to wrestle with if they're going to know how to get right with God and live with him forever and avoid destruction and know the beauty and purposefulness of walking with Christ. And this is an attempt to help you strengthen your grip on the gospel and its grip on you and your usefulness in God's purposes. So let's look at it together. I'm just going to walk into it with you. We won't get very far, but we'll pick it up in two weeks. By the way, next week I'm going to talk about abortion and then pick the series up the next week. I got it wrong in the star. We got a new strategy with abortion here. So we're going the week before Roe versus Wade not the week of Roe versus Wade because we've got some things in mind that we're going to do together as a church that you've got to hear about the week before. So, next week, abortion. The week after that, we pick it up with truth number two. On the front of the, the panel, it says, Quest for Joy. Now, the intention of that big title is to establish a common ground with everybody. And I believe deep in my, my heart that Christians don't live on Mars. They have their feet firmly planted on planet Earth where every single solitary human being wants to be happy. Period. No arguments. I don't care what anybody says about how high their motives rise. You want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. And even though we look out at the world and we see people ruining their lives, And some destroying themselves right up to suicide. The reason they're doing it is to avoid pain. Everybody wants to maximize happiness and minimize misery. And some people kill themselves to do that. There's no contradiction between suicide and the absolute statement that everybody wants to be happy. Some people destroying themselves, but everybody wants to be happy. Some people ruining their lives, but everybody's on this quest. This is common ground, brothers and sisters. 
I stand where everybody in this city stands. I want to be happy more than I want anything in the world. Now, if that doesn't sound Christian to you, you better get the book and read it. But we may answer that question right here in this tract. Everybody wants to be happy. This is the common ground. That's what they ought to see first. Then we open it. So let's open it together. And you've got a double panel here with a square around it. And a question is asked. Did you know that God commands us to be happy? Now that is an annoying question. It's a troubling question. It's intended to be annoying. I'll explain why. The word command is not a pleasant word to the people that live in this city, nor to most of us. We don't want people to command us. We're not out to be commanded to do anything. Thank you. We can make it. It's not a nice word. Well, then why did I use it? Because common ground is not the only way to share the gospel. Right from the start, a tension is created when you begin to share the gospel with somebody who's outside Christ. A tension. A necessary tension. I don't think the tension can be avoided. And the tension is simply this. God is God. Any sharing of the gospel that tries to do an end run around the authority of God to run the world will not wind up in the truth. You must, in some way, begin to ease into people's consciousness there is a God who reigns over your life and has absolute creator rights to tell you what you ought to do. Now, that's the negative side that makes you feel uncomfortable with this question. The word command, it just doesn't ring. But then it says, he commands us to be happy. And that just... So the second thing about this this question is that it's alluring. Most people have never heard anybody say this. They have the notion, some of them, that God's the grandfatherly type in heaven that wants people to be happy. But they've never heard anybody say quite that he commands them to be happy. Listen, it's all right if he wants me to be happy, but I don't know if they even like him commanding me to be happy. And so this question is very carefully crafted to create attention in people's minds with God's authority, which has to be reckoned with, and their deep desire to be happy. And then we give the textual verse Simplest one, straightforward in verse Psalm 37, 4 at the bottom of that panel. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And of course, if you're talking with somebody about this, you can say, you know, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of other commands in the Bibles to this effect as well. Rejoice in the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Be content in all things. The Bible is shot through with authoritative commands that we be happy. It's not an isolated verse, in other words. We want to bring people to a recognition 
that they can find happiness in God. Now, at the top of the next panel, there are three sentences. Sentences that I would die for. They are not rhetorical flourishes. They are not uh, verbal rhetoric. They are the product of 20 years of meditation on the essence of the Bible and the gospel. Let me read them with you. The best news in the world is that there is no necessary conflict between our happiness and God's holiness. Trusting God for everything brings Him honor and us happiness. God's purpose to be glorified and our longing to be satisfied succeed together. Now that's a lot. I know it is. Those are demanding sentences. But they are wonderful sentences. It's the essence of the Bible. It's all that this book is intended to say, desiring God. It's all that I'm intended to say when I preach. It's what we're about as a church. What those three sentences are intended to signal at the outset of a sharing with someone is this. The Christian message is concerned not merely with my happiness, but with God's holiness. The Christian message is not concerned merely with my happiness, but with God's honor. The Christian message is concerned not merely with my desire to be satisfied, but with God's passion to be glorified. We're preserving the tension, in other words. I want to be satisfied. I won't have a religion that doesn't satisfy me. What good would it be? Who wants it? But God is God, and He will be glorified. And if there could be a world in which those two things could happen together, I'd want that world. I'd want that world more than anything I can imagine, where God can be God, holy, honored, glorified, and I could be absolutely, totally fully satisfied forever and ever. Do you hear those two things? Fully and forever. There it is in the next verse at the bottom of the panel. You have made known to me the path of life. That's all that evangelism is, making known the path of life. You, God, will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Everybody in this world wants those two things. Full and lasting happiness. Nobody, if you ask them, would say, if you say, would you like just to be half happy for the rest of your life? Nobody would say, yeah, 50%. That would be just fine. Everybody wants 100%. That's what's offered in this text. And if you said to people, and how about... 10 years and then 30 years of misery. Would that be okay? Nobody would say, fine, 10 is fine. And if you said, how about 50 and then a million of misery? Nobody would say, fine. Everybody wants two things. Full and lasting satisfaction. There it is. 
Psalm 16:11. So now all you've got is a lot of uh, surprising input from the Bible about happiness and a lot of tension creating words of divine reality and authority and glory and holiness. And a lot of tension exists before you open this pamphlet up. Something's got to happen here. And the, and the greatest thing in the world is that Christianity claims to be a way for putting this together. You get, glo- you get happiness, satisfaction, and God gets glory. So let's open it up and just look for a few minutes at truth number one. We don't have much time. There are six truths, and what I want to do in these five weeks is try to make real clear why we consider these six truths so important, why they're in the order they're in, why we start where we start, and where it all leads, and how this builds the bridge between God's passion to be glorified as a holy God and our passion to be satisfied, sinners though we be. How do you get that together so that this world doesn't fly apart? Truth number one. God created us for His glory. And then the text that David read, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, whom I created for my glory. Now, why do we begin there? Let me give you three reasons for why we begin with a statement about God's Purpose to glorify himself in you or the person we're talking to. Why begin there? Reason number one. In sharing the gospel, you eventually get to the point where you have to confront people with their sin. And the best text in the Bible to do it with is Romans 3.23, isn't it? For all have sinned and yet... You just quote for me the next text. I know 100 people in this room know it. For all have sinned and... All right. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard a gospel presentation that lays the groundwork for understanding what it means to fall short of the glory of God? I haven't. That's a problem. If you're going to eventually confront people in the gospel presentation with a verse that says... All have sinned and fall short of His glory. Oh, that's just a bloop out of nowhere. I think you ought to lay some groundwork for what it means to fall short of glory. Whose glory? What does falling short mean? What difference does it make? Why is that a problem? Just so many questions ought to flood the mind with the sentence, you've fallen short of the glory of God. And so we're going to lay that foundation and start with the glory of God. That's reason number one. Reason number two is the Bible teaches almost everywhere that the glory of God is central in everything. It's just the central reality of the universe You can't understand anything about Christ, faith, or sin until you know something about the glory of our Maker and His purposes in the world. The cross makes no sense apart from the glory that was being repaired by it. 
having been trampled by sin. There is a worldview that you have to have, at least in miniature, to understand the gospel. Now, I know that uh, the word glory, as well as the word holy and quest and joy, any word given the right person can be a technical word outside their vocabulary. So, whoever you're talking to is going to need help with any word you particularly discover. The word glory is not a religious technical term. It's used on the sports page of the Tribune every other day. And uh, you know what it means. When that sun began to come up this morning and it began to shine white on the snow and the trees glisten, you know what glory is. When you see a double backflip with a full twist on the mat in the Olympics, you know what glory is. And so do all the sports writers. This is not a religious term. This is a term radiant with meaning for people who will listen. And I would use words if you want to explain to people greatness, excellence, power, beauty, wisdom, goodness, worth, perfection. Fill it up with words and with meaning for people when you're talking. Now, when Paul preached the gospel in the book of Acts, did he start like this? I'm real, I want to preach biblically. And I'm troubled here, you know. You start reading the sermons in the book of Acts, these gospel sermons. He didn't say this. He didn't start this way. I said, hmm, am I, you know, is this logic? Is is my theology kind of just forcing something that's not biblical? You don't start the gospel this way? And I've thought about that for years. Because, and and if, you're, if you're a person who, who has found the four laws effective, same problem. He didn't start with the love of God either. Here's the situation. Every sermon in the book of Acts, except one, is preached to Jews who know that God is sovereign. The whole Old Testament is shot through with the glory of God. He came to synagogues in city after city where he preached, and he assumed the reality of God and a great God. One sermon he didn't, Mars Hill. And how did he start? Verse 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives life and breath and everything. You see where he starts? These Greek philosophers, they had a miniature God about a quarter of an inch tall. And Paul knew that before he got to talking about repentance in Jesus Christ, he better just enlarge their vision of what they're up against. That's where we are in America. The people we talk to during the day, they're not impressed with God. They're not impressed. He is no big deal in America. If you try to share the gospel simply keying in to the self-centeredness of this culture, you will wreck the gospel. And there will be a lot of wrecked, professing Christians who never get beyond the quarter of an inch God that they had at the start. That's reason number two for beginning with God. 
Not trying to avoid common ground. Not trying to alienate people. Trying to lure them in with all we can and all the beauty and glory of this God and how much He's for them and wants them to be happy. But He's God. And He will be glorified. He has authority over the world. You don't leave that out. Third reason for why we begin with this is is this. You get more out of something when you know why it was made, including your own life. I'll give you an illustration. Suppose you, uh, let me use my own house. Suppose uh, a person from a very primitive culture comes and, and they're flown right out of their thatch hut with no Western technical experience. They come and they're plopped in my living room. It's pouring down rain outside and and it's cold, and uh, you come to visit them, and you open the door, and they're shivering there in the living room and grumbling, and, and they say, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And they've got this pan in the fireplace, this big pan. And there's this big hole here going up for the rain to come through, and it doesn't come through. There's The water it doesn't come. To, it doesn't work. And you say, well, this is a, this is a fireplace. This is not a water catcher. This is a fireplace. You're supposed to put wood in there and then light it on fire and it warms the house. And the, the hole is to let the smoke go up out of the chimney. If you don't know what something's for, you can't get out of it all that you could get out of it, including your own life. Now, if you're talking to somebody... If they'll just admit for the sake of argument that there is a creator God, and most people sort of feel that there is, then you can ask them, now, if there's a creator God, why do you think he made you? And doesn't it make sense that if you don't know how he made you, and you're walking down a road different purposes, that you're not going to get all out of life that you could get, and you might get into real trouble? If you don't know why you exist, what you were designed for, you might be like a pan in a fireplace. It's just ridiculous what you're doing with your life. And so we begin, that's the third reason, we begin with a statement, God created us for His glory, and let me read the paragraph. Deep and lasting joy comes from being what we were created to be. And we were created to be mirrors of God's glory, to fill the earth with the light of his beauty by reflecting it to others. Now, I'm going to say a lot more about this in two weeks, about, about uh, being a crystal in the light of this sun. Let me just apply this in closing, very personally to everybody in this room, all right? The Bible teaches so plainly that you individually are made by God. Don't just think that you're some kind of accidental uh, evolutionary product or mutations. Don't even think that God created Adam and Eve and then He let everything go and I just happened to be what came of the gene pool. The Bible says very much God knit you, fashioned you with His hands in the womb of your mother, every one of you with a unique personality. He gave you the body you have. You may not like it, Check it with him. But it's his purpose. Really, my hair gets thinner right here every day. And I check that out with the Lord. And what are you doing here? 
No accidents here. God gave you the personality and the body you have for one reason. So that you would be like a a crystal and absolutely unique in shape and you would put yourself by faith in the light of his glorious grace so that off of this little unique crystal would come rays and reflections, little colors and that no other crystal in the world can reflect. You will have words to say. You will have things to do. You will have expressions of face and tones of voice. Nobody else will have as a means of glorifying your Father in heaven. You were made to bring glory to your Father by being the unique you, by faith, that God created you to be. And my plea to you this morning, my urging to you this morning, is trust Him. Because the Bible makes so plain that walking in the light of God's glory is trusting in the grace of God. And the beautiful gospel is that when you trust in God's grace, He gets the glory and you get the joy. You get satisfied, He gets glorified. And it's the greatest of all possible worlds. And so I commend it to you for your consideration. Tuck this in your Bible, bring it back in two weeks, and we'll pick it up with truth one and two next time. Let's stand for closing prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we long so much together as a church that you would empower us in evangelism. We want to make known God, sin, Christ, faith, We want to make known a biblical understanding of God, a biblical understanding of sin, a biblical understanding of Christ and of faith. And oh, how I pray that you'd send the roots of your people deep into biblical truth, that you'd fill them up with understanding and then give them a heart of love and excitement for this glorious news that we have, that you will be glorified, we will be satisfied, and everybody will be satisfied who puts their trust in in Jesus. Lord, we dedicate ourselves afresh in 1989 to make known your glory. And all the people said, Amen.